Hi everyone, Phil here. I'm proud to announce that RIT Space Exploration is hosting a crowdfunding campaign, creating payloads for high-altitude balloons, maintaining telescopes, and doing satellite development is expensive. And we need your help to continue offering practical experience to students. Your donation would be going into equipment into our astro tracking team, which will allow us to conduct better observational research and for funding future projects such as high-altitude balloons. Every student and faculty member of SPECS is a volunteer, putting lots of time, hard work, and passion into these projects, and a little money goes a long way. You can find a link to our crowdfunding campaign through our social media channels. Look for RIT SPECS on Facebook, Twitter, or go to specs.rit.edu. Thanks a lot. Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. And today we are speaking with Troy Hudson, an instrument manager and instrument systems engineer for the HP-Cube experiment on NASA's next Mars lander, InSight. SpexCast is brought to you by RIT Space Exploration, also known as SPEX, a student-faculty research group at the Rochester Institute of Technology. On this podcast, we delve into the technologies that make space exploration possible. You can learn more about Specs and SpexCast at our website, specs.rit.edu. I guess we're ready to go. I don't have the list of questions in front of me at the moment, although I can pull them up, but I can just let you ask. Wonderful. Yeah, uh, I'll ask the first one, and that is, um, what do you do at JPL, and what is your role on the InSight mission? So I am a... My training is in planetary geology, but I primarily work in the field of instrument systems engineering. And that has been my role on InSight as the instrument manager and instrument systems engineer for the HP cubed instrument. That's the heat flow probe. And have you worked on any interplanetary missions in the past? So as it turns out, my first job at JPL when I joined in May of 2008, so almost 10 years ago, was as a uh, was part of the Phoenix Mars lander mission, which turns out has a great deal of heritage uh, with respect to InSight. They're based on the same lander bus that's been designed by and built by Lockheed Martin. So I joined JPL just about three weeks before Phoenix landed. So I got to see all the really exciting uh, operational work, uh, but it was only very peripherally involved when I was still a grad student with the preparations for that with the, you know, the engineering and the testing of the instruments. Uh, then I got involved with Phoenix, which was a short-lived mission, only about five months of active work on Mars's surface. And then um, since then, I've worked on a number of other both proposals and small R&D projects, uh, one stratospheric balloon project. But the last seven to eight years, I have been very largely focused on InSight. Great. Um, So what's your personal story with the InSight mission? Like, how did it get started? Have you been with it since the beginning? Well, the beginning is a hard thing to define. The principal investigator for InSight, uh, Bruce Banner, has been trying to get a seismometer on Mars for over 30 years now. It's been a professional goal of his and something that many scientists agree is a very worthwhile thing to do. Uh, My involvement began back in 2000 nine or 10, I think it was 2010, uh, when NASA released their Discovery 2010 proposal call, where they basically, and this is one of NASA's competed mission um, types, where they say, here's a pot of money, um, and we have a mission, or rather, here's a pot of money, propose a mission that goes to this, you know, selection of targets somewhere in this, somewhere in the solar system, um, and they're competed. And InSight, over two rounds of proposal process, which took about two years, ended up being the finalist. So I was involved at the beginning of InSight's proposal in the Discovery 2010 process as one of the people designed to, or one of the people assigned to create um, the science implementation. So to work with the various instrument partners and pull the whole thing together into a workable mission. Both the French space agency who built the seismometer and the German space agency who built the um, 
heat flow probe have been working on these sorts of things for much longer than InSight has been around. Great. So let's talk about those instruments. Um, InSight has three primary geophysics instrument payloads on board. Um, the first one, uh, you mentioned SICE, and that's the Seismic Experiment for Interior Structure. Mm -hmm. and it's basically um, a very advanced seismometer that'll measure seismic activity on Mars. What are some of the key things that make SICE special? Well, SICE is, in fact, six seismometers. It consists of three very broad baseline seismometers, or VBBs, and then three short period seismometers, or STs. Uh, and these have some overlap, but they cover different frequency ranges for ground motion, which is, of course, what a seismometer detects. Um, the other special thing, and you might not consider it special about size, is that it's as good, as sensitive, as the best terrestrial seismometers, which is saying something, because those are very sensitive instruments. They can measure incredibly small displacements and accelerations, um, and getting something that sensitive, both worthy for spaceflight so that it can survive the rigors of that environment um, and, you know, get it on Mars and let it operate autonomously in that harsh uh, place without interference from a lot of noise sources. It's a really delicate thing. So I have a question on uh, the seismometers. What engineering uh, difference or tuning goes into a VBB, a very broadband, versus the narrow band? Are they completely different mechanisms? Are they just tuned differently to different frequency ranges? Yeah, they're completely different mechanisms. The, uh, the SP is sort of a, if I recall correctly, is a MEMS-type etched um, uh, solid-state device, whereas the uh, VBB seismometers are inverted pendulums. Um, so I wouldn't quote me on the SP uh, fundaments itself, but the SP and the VBB seismometers are fundamentally different techniques for measuring accelerations and displacements. And for our audience, MEMS is Microelectrical Mechanical System. Um, so taking kind of the technology that we've used in semiconductors and building very small structures and building mechanical devices out of those. That is the definition of MEMS. Again, I would ask you not to go, not, not to take too much of what I say about the SP seismometers as gospel because I have not worked closely with them. Oh, we're super eager to get into H cubed. Uh, but first up, or next up, is RISE, uh, the Rotation and Interior Structure Experiment, which will use radios that communicate with the Deep Space Network to measure the wobble of Mars's axis as it rotates. How is that wobble measured? Well, the, the RISE instrument takes advantage of InSight's telecommunication system, although it has dedicated antennas. And what it does is beams a, uh, a tone uh, in the X-band radio frequency range back to Earth. Uh, and by monitoring the shifts in this frequency, we can very precisely track the distance between the receiving station on Earth and the lander on Mars. Um, you can then, you just, you project this, you know, changing distance, you account for orbital motion and bulk planetary rotation, but you can still, one of the parameters that you're looking to find is the pole direction for Mars and how that pole direction changes over time. Um, as Mars spins on its axis and moves in its orbit, it wobbles, just like any non-perfectly symmetric object would wobble as it rotates. Very much like that old, you know, quasi-scientific demonstration of the hard-boiled egg and the raw egg spinning differently. It's the same sort of thing. As an object that is either centrally dense or more uniformly dense spins, it spins in a different way. That moment of inertia governs the precession of Mars's axis, and smaller uh, or uh, more information about the density distribution is held in the uh, shorter term wobbles, uh, what's called nutation. Uh, this is something that all, you know, the moon nutates, Mars nutates. Um, but the information contained in that wobble is about the core of Mars. And one of the things we don't have a very good handle on at all is how big Mars's core is, what 
and what physical state it's in. Is it fully solid? Is it fully liquid? Or is it partially liquid or partially dissolved? Those are some pretty big questions we have that we really can't answer unless we have a better sense of how Mars spins. Yeah. One of the big themes uh, at your talk at GPL uh, that we'll have linked in the show notes was that all the different sensors are generating data that work together to provide insight. Uh, moving on to the next instrument, HP cubed, or the heat flow and physical properties package, uh, we'll use a soil probe to measure the temperature gradient between the surface and five meters below the surface. How can such a small change in distance, five meters, measure the deep interior when Mars has a radius of over 3,300 kilometers? Well, the thing to understand about HP cubed is it's not actually going after the gradient. The gradient is just a means to get to the number we actually care about, which is heat flow or heat flux. So heat is the engine that drives geologic processes. And a planet has heat from two primary sources, the gravitational energy of accretion and its original inventory of radioactive isotopes. These decay over time and they continue to release heat into the interior and all this heat, the gravitational heat and the radiogenic heat is processed or moves or transported somehow in the interior, whether through conduction or convection out towards the surface where it is ultimately very slowly lost to space. Um, so by measuring Mars's heat flow, even at a single location, we get information about the current thermal state of the interior, whether there's convection happening or, there's, or, or the crust is so thick and the, and the mantle is just conductively moving heat. There's a number of different models for the way heat might move and how planets, terrestrial planets like Mars, might evolve over time. And we need to distinguish amongst those models. They have a very broad range of predictions for heat flow. Uh, so HP cubed is going to measure heat flow, and it does that by measuring the thermal gradient in the ground and the thermal conductivity, which is a physical property of the ground itself. Uh, the reason we have to go into the ground is because at the surface you have uh, daily temperature variations as the sun rises and sets, and you have seasonal variations as Mars goes around its orbit. These are essentially noise. They're disturbances that propagate down into the ground by a few meters, but they totally swamp out any of the heat flow coming out from the interior, that gradient that HP cubed would measure. So by, measure, by digging into the ground, which is the key feature of the HP cubed instrument, we can measure the thermal gradient. We also measure the thermal conductivity as we dig, and using those two numbers, we get the heat flow. So um, I've been, since my, uh, the beginning of my involvement with InSight in 2010, and then later on as the proposal matured and the mission was eventually selected, I have served as the instrument manager and systems engineer for HP Cubed. Now, HP Cubed is a contributed instrument built by the German Space Agency, and they have their own team there of managers and systems engineers and quality assurance folk and they are the ones primarily responsible for the design of the instrument, although some testing and some um, collaborative design work was done at JPL. Sure. Uh, so HPQ is the kind of exemplary experience that really gets us excited. It's an elegant solution to a difficult problem. For those that don't know how the system works, uh, when InSight lands on the surface, what is the first step to deploying HPQ? Well... One of the unique things about the InSight mission is it's the first time we've ever used, um, first time we've ever deployed instruments from a landed craft to the surface. We're using a robotic arm to do that. The first thing that gets deployed after we've landed and checked everything out is the seismometer. And then it gets covered with a wind and thermal shield to protect it from uh, direct solar insulation and wind, which can be a vibrational disturbance that would destroy the, the, the data or, or corrupt the data from the seismometer. After those two items are on the ground, HP cubed is the last thing to get deployed. And there is a carbon fiber support structure which holds some tethers and a device called the mole. So we pick up the support structure and pull it off to the ground with a tether playing out behind us and this connects it back to the lander. Once it's on the ground, we release the mole and then it starts digging. The mole 
is, you can think of it as a self-hammering nail. It's about the diameter of a quarter, and it's about as long as your forearm. It's made of aluminum and titanium primarily, and inside there's a motor and gearbox that winds up a hammer, which incidentally is made of tungsten, against some very strong springs. Uh, once per revolution, this hammer is released and the springs throw it against the inside of the mole's conical tip. There's a complicated uh, mechanism inside. Uh, well, it's, it's complicated in its details, but, but in general, it's quite simple. It's, it's a set of springs, a primary set of springs that drive the hammer, and then some, uh, a, a reaction spring that absorbs some of the rebound force. Uh, Another part of the rebound force is provided either by the support structure or by the soil pressing on the sides of the mole. This is the reaction force that allows the mole to actually make forward progress as opposed to just bouncing around in free space. Um, so every time the hammer strikes, the mole moves forward on order of a, a millimeter or less. Uh, it's quite slow, quite stately. Uh, the hammer strokes happen about once every four seconds. So it's like click. Click, click. It's quite quite slow, um, but as uh, as it does this, it just knocks its way millimeter by millimeter into the ground. Um, as it does this, it pulls a tether behind it, which provides power and data to the mole. And that tether itself is in, is a scientific instrument. It's embedded with temperature sensors. So the mole digs into the ground, uh, pulling this tether behind it, which ultimately will measure the thermal gradient. But as we go down, we dig about 50 centimeters. And by the way, our ultimate goal uh, is five meters. We have a requirement to reach three. Our goal is five, uh, which is deeper than we've ever dug on any planetary body besides Earth, including the Apollo astronauts digging thermal measurement boreholes on the moon. They didn't go this deep. So the mole um, has uh, as it digs, it stops every now and then, about every 50 centimeters, and cools down. The, heating, the, the hammering process generates heat. So we wait for about 48 hours, and then we have heaters embedded in the hull of the mole, and we actually apply a known amount of power to those, heating the entire mole body. Doing this and monitoring its temperature can tell us about the thermal conductivity of the soil that surrounds the mole. The more conductive it is, the faster the heat gets pulled away and the slower the temperature will rise. So we do this at a given depth and then we hammer again, another 50 centimeters. Pause to cool down, 24 hours of thermal conductivity measurements and then another penetration. So we stair step our way a bit at a time down into the subsurface. Um, so there we have our thermal conductivity numbers, a profile of thermal conductivity. And we finally have the temperature sensors embedded in the ground. Another key feature is the mole in its aft section has a set of uh, static accelerometers. These measure tilt or orientation with respect to the local gravity vector. Um, this combined with a monitoring device in the support structure, which tells us the length of tether that's been deployed, allows us to reconstruct the path of the mole in the subsurface. If it's a totally uniform medium, it'll probably just go straight down. But if there are density variations or small rocks, the mole can get pushed or deflected and move in a non-vertical way. Um, not a lot of deviation, but maybe some. But it's important for our final measurement to get really precise numbers on where those temperature sensors eventually end up. So we use the static tilt meter called STATL and the tether length monitor to reconstruct the mole's path in the ground as it makes its, its way to, to the bottom. The whole process, once the mole is deployed, will probably take about 30 days. Um, and then after that point, the mole has done its job and we just use the science tether to monitor the thermal gradient for the duration of the mission. It's so much more interesting when you get even like as the deeper you go into the details, the more interesting this uh, instrument uh, experiment gets. Um, yeah, so let, let, I, I can really... tell you, a, I can tell you a really fascinating story. Um, so we, one of the things that you do with uh, space 
space instruments is you want to test them in as realistic an environment as possible before you fly them. For many things, this is putting them in a thermal vacuum chamber or on a vibration platform and putting them through their paces. But for the mole, we're going to a place that no one's ever gone to before, deep into the subsurface of another object. Um, and we built test beds. There are test beds in Germany, and there were test beds at JPL that I built. Um, and so we wanted to test the mole in a vacuum environment, or rather low pressure environment like Mars, which as far as you know, you and I might be concerned, might as well be vacuum. Um, and it turns out we found something really interesting for a very particular type of soil, uh, which we don't expect to find on Mars, but it was a, it was conceived of as a sort of worst case scenario. Um, for a particular kind of soil, the mole was not hammering. It, it, would, it would bounce, it wouldn't actually penetrate. Um, and we did a lot of investigation to figure out what was going on. We thought maybe something was wrong with the mole or the mechanism itself. We took it to a special facility and did high speed x-ray videos of the mole in operation, getting a chance to see inside it. Everything looked fine. Uh, some further deep thought on the matter, and it turns out that in certain soils which are cohesive, meaning they hold their own structure much better than a loose sand would, think of baker's flour or something like that. You stick your finger in it and wiggle it around, you pull your finger out and there's a hole that's finger shaped. Um, in soils like that, like soils with a lot of clay or, or really, really fine dust, um, it can be quite cohesive. And when the mole hammers, it vibrates a little bit, and this can create this hole. In doing so, it actually pulls the soil or pushes the soil away from the body of the mole. The soil and its contact with the mole walls is an essential component of the mole's activity. It needs that side force to react against so that it can make forward progress. Um, when uh, we did these tests, we found out that it hammered fine in this soil at atmospheric pressure. Uh, and, but it did hammer under Mars pressures, which was totally unexpected. Um, and what we believe is the case, and we've done, we've done the math and we looked at the physics to convince ourselves of this, when the mole is embedded in a very fine soil like that and it hammers, and bounces or starts to bounce back, you actually cavitate at the front of the mole. You create a little bit of a vacuum between the tip of the mole and the soil. Now, gas can flow through soils that are permeable, but it's not an instantaneous process. So as the mole would bounce up back, this vacuum is created at the front. Well, when you're in an atmosphere, you have atmospheric pressure pushing on the back of the mole. And it turns out that that's enough force to react the mole forward so that it can still make forward progress and dig into the ground. But under low pressure conditions, you don't have that restoring force on the aft section of the mole. So the cavitation doesn't, uh, it's, it's basically equivalent pressures on both sides. So the mole just ends up bouncing in place. Once we figured that out, we, you know, revised our, our uh, you know, we, we did some design work and, and, and thought about ways that we might be able to make the mole robust against this. Um, but as it turns out, looking more closely at the geology of the site we picked to land, it's a very low rock and it's a very low dust environment. We're more likely going to be digging in something that's like sand. And sand is cohesionless, um, at least the sands we've seen on Mars are cohesionless, and they uh, will uh, slump against the side of the mole. Except for a small crust at the surface, the sand just flows like regular sand does. And so this provides a constant degree of contact with the mole body and allows it to do its penetrating job just fine. So it didn't actually affect the ultimate design of the mole, but it was a really interesting phenomenon that none of us had actually anticipated. That's an amazing anecdote. Um, and it brings to mind one question that's really basic um, that I have about this. And uh -huh. that is why choose to hammer instead of something more conventional like a drill? Right. So for, uh, you know, for anything that you're going to launch into space, you really want to optimize mass and power, or rather you want to minimize mass and power usage because those are very precious resources. They're very expensive resources. And so if you wanted to send something that was a, like a rotary drill, which would pull 
soil particles up and eject them out as tailings, essentially. Um, that is uh, something you could do, but you need something to react against. You can't just have a drill that is on a light platform because the platform will end up spinning. So you need to have some sort of supporting structure uh, for that torque to react against. And uh, it was not it was not practical in the, in the sense of the total mass of the instrument and the total amount of power it could consume. Because it turns out the mole, when it hammers, it takes less than a watt of energy to do this work, but it's a very slow process. Like I mentioned before, that motor pulls back and energizes that spring over four seconds and releases in less than a tenth of a second. So you've got, you're trading um, your energy for time, uh, the energy input into the soil for time. A rotary drill might be faster, um, might ultimately allow you to go through uh, harder materials, like the Curiosity rovers and the Mars Exploration rovers. They had rasping tools, and Curiosity has a drill because we actually want to drill into rocks. The mole is designed to penetrate through soil by pushing soil particles out of its way. So um, it was. The mole, like I mentioned before, the mole has been in development by DLR as a technique for accessing the subsurface in planetary regoliths, that is planetary soils. Um, and uh, to do so in a multitude of different environments and to optimize for any given mission, the design architecture that was chosen was one of a pile driver with no external moving parts. Um, so the short answer is it's lower mass and it's lower power to do it the pile driving way than it is to try to do it the rotary way. Yeah. So when you guys first decided on the pile driver method, uh, were there any prior designs, whether prior space missions or Earth-based designs that use this methodology you could borrow inspiration from? Or was this a case of we need to be able to dig uh, with this method and just using first principles and physical principles to figure out a way to, of digging deeper. I can't comment too much on the original history of the mole design. I think it goes back quite some time, originally conceived of maybe more than a decade ago, and possibly not even the, in the context of a planetary mission. Um, Self-contained and even self-directed drills are uh, of various sorts, rotary or otherwise, are used in the, uh, in the petroleum industry uh, quite a bit. And there may have been some inspiration drawn from those. Um, but ultimately, the, the challenge of subsurface access, shallow subsurface access, mind you, um, on a planetary body might have... Uh, might have driven the original designers towards this um, self-contained hammering paradigm. Um, I do know that another instrument uh, on the European Space Agency's Rosetta mission that went to Cherimov-Gerasimenko uh, 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 comet, uh, the Philae lander, had a thermal conductivity probe called MUFUS, and that was also a mole of sorts, but it was a very different design. It had a very slender needle um, that was maybe um, 25, 30 centimeters long with uh, an electromagnetic hammering driver on the top of it. It kind of looked like a very lopsided um, uh, pencil with a huge eraser on it. And uh, this uh, actuator would also drive it, but it was an electromagnetic device. So there are a number of different techniques that exist um, and have been thought of. And if we were to go back to square one, perfectly fully scratch and redesign something to achieve the same requirements as HB cubed, there might be some other architectures we could, we could choose from, such as an electromagnetic uh, hammering mechanism as opposed to a mechanical one. I have another question about the design, um, and that's, um, what informed the deployed um, architecture? So, uh, as you mentioned, HP cubed is separate from the lander and is deployed with a robotic arm. Why not embed um, the mole and, and deploy it straight from the deck of the lander? 
Well, you're talking about is playing from the underside of the deck of the lander. And, um, I mean, spacecraft are quite dense objects. And, there's, uh, and I don't mean dense as in materials dense. I mean that there's a lot of stuff going on. On the underside of the lander, you've got the descent thrusters and the legs and the propellant tanks, as well as the warm electronics enclosure that keeps all of the brains of the spacecraft um, well insulated from the Martian environment. Having something that is designed to not only go through the deck, but descend from the deck down to the ground. And I mean, it's about a meter or so from the deck top to the ground, but to, to, to drop that distance, you're going to need some sort of, uh, you know, winch system or, or, or otherwise. And something on the underside of the lander is potentially exposed to all of the debris that's kicked up during the final moments of, of, of the powered descent. Um, so, uh, since, Neither H, well, both HP cubed and the seismometer are, well, the seismometer is a much more delicate instrument than HP cubed is, um, and it needed the robotic arm to deploy to the surface. And as the mission was conceived, and as I mentioned, this has been proposed in a number of different incarnations going back many years, um, the idea of your seismometer being picked up by a robotic arm and placed on the ground is has been sort of part of the architecture of this mission for quite some time. Uh, you need to get the stuff away from the lander because as far as the seismometer is concerned, because the lander is noisy. It's electromagnetically noisy and it's vibrationally noisy. Um, so you have the arm and the HP cubed, even before it became part of the InSight mission, I think that this mole and this design was, you know, conceived up for as a small, low power, low um, mass solution for uh, deployed craft. Now, if we had a craft that was more like, say, Pathfinder, where it lands and it's already on the ground um, and it does, it's not standing up above, you, I think there had been some proposal ideas in the past about having something that would then just penetrate straight down and into the ground. Um, but uh, for the InSight mission, based on the Phoenix lander architecture, and Phoenix also had a robotic arm, um, so we took advantage of the uh, elements that were already present and the elements that we had heritage for um, to allow us to you know, get our instruments to the surface. Do you think having a robotic arm and deployable payloads, you mentioned InSight's the first uh, mission to deploy payloads on the surface, is going to be the status quo going forward? Uh, are the benefits of deploying the experiments that much greater? Really depends on the experiment and the instrument. Um, with, um, you know, there are certain things like seismology and heat flow, for instance, that you can't measure unless you're physically touching the object. Um, and so there might be other landing architectures, for instance, uh, not only do you want to touch the object, you also don't want to move once you've done it. So these are not the sort of instruments you would ever put on a rover. You want to put them on a lander, which is static and stationary. That's also essential for the RISE mission. So whether or not a, uh, an instrument needs to be deployed and would be deployed by a robotic arm, it really depends. All right. So switching over to some of the uh, science uh, that we expect to get back for this mission, uh, InSight is a mission about geophysics and planetary science, not just on Mars. How will the data InSight collects improve our understanding of other planets like Earth? If you look at the rocky planets in the solar system, Mercury, Earth, Venus, Mars, and perhaps the moon, if you want to uh, you know, include it in that category, they're very different objects, but they all ultimately form from the same solar nebula. Um, and one of the big questions we have is why are they different? Um, Earth um, you know, and Mars came together four and a half billion years ago, but uh, Earth has evolved a great deal since then. It's a very active place. It has a lot of initial heat, a lot of radioactive isotopes that have generated heat. And it's a very active place. You have a liquid outer core generating magnetic fields. You have earthquakes and volcanoes and plate tectonics. All of these things um, are, you know, have erased or otherwise um, processed or masked sort of the original 
state of the planet and its early evolution. Much of that evidence is gone or inaccessible. Mars is big enough, meaning bigger than the moon, to have experienced some of the same processes, pressure and temperature, as Earth has, um, but it's small. So it's lost a lot of that early heat and kind of, we expect, froze into an earlier stage of its evolution, which might be a window into uh, Earth's early past and early evolution. And understanding how rocky planets form and evolve is very important to the understanding of planets in general, um, or rocky planets in general, which we continue to discover extrasolar planets. Um, these are places that could be abodes for life. And so we're interested in how they form and how they evolve. And certain things that Earth has, like plate tectonics and a strong magnetic field, seem to be very favorable for life as a whole, recycling carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, shielding us from in the atmosphere from uh, harmful solar wind and radiation. Uh, these are things that Mars lacks, at least at present. Um, and, uh, you know, understanding their prevalence and what might be um, what might be needed for their existence and what effects they have on the planet's evolution are unanswered questions. Now, at your talk at GPL, you mentioned that uh, planets can have a sort of seismic hum. And you mentioned here on Earth that there is the hum from pressure from the atmosphere, clouds, uh, the moon, but also the oceans. And that Mars, because it's oceanless, has a different kind of hum. Can you kind of elaborate more on that? A little bit. Um, so the hum that I referred to is just sort of a background level of seismic noise that even in the quietest place you can get to on Earth, deep mines in the middle of interplate areas, it's always present. Um, and on Earth, the source of that hum is both atmospheric interaction with the surface, that is wind, and it's water interaction with the surface, that is the, um, you know, like ocean waves. Tides also, but more so just the impact of waves on shores and just that constant source of noise all over the planet. Mars, even though its atmosphere is thin, has an atmosphere that can interact with the surface. We see it pick up and move dust and sand particles. So it's definitely a contributor to what might be that planet's seismic hum, but it has no ocean. Um, and as I understand it, one of the things that we don't have a good grasp on yet is how the relative contributions of the atmosphere and the ocean are to Earth's uh, seismic hum. So by going to a place that only has one of those two sources, it might shed some light on uh, the mechanisms behind that hum's origin. Uh, continuing to focus on the scientific goals of the mission, what data are you most excited to get and what hypotheses do you have that you hope to prove or disprove from the data you get back? Well, this is a, this is a case of really exploratory work. Um, you've seen cutaway diagrams of planets before and the cutaway diagram of Mars and our educated guesses as to how thick its crust is, how thick its core is, and what the overall structure of the planet is, is just that. It's educated guesses, extrapolations from what we know about the Earth and the Moon. As is always the case in science, I expect that we're going to be surprised. Um, the Juno mission that is in orbit around Jupiter right now has discovered that Jupiter's core is probably a partially dissolved object, meaning it has solid and liquid components. Mars may also surprise us in ways that I can't predict, but it's that unpredictability that makes it exciting. Yeah, we're very excited to find out. So you mentioned that you work closely with a German team on H-Cubed. How is it like working with an international team working on science instruments, working on the spacecraft? And what has been some of the challenges and what are some, some of the uh, moments that stood out to you that you were really impressed by while working across the globe on this project? Hmm. Well, uh, 
one of the things that you'll find working in any institution, even within NASA and different NASA centers, they're just different cultures. And I mean work cultures, um, ways of ways of doing things, um, different processes and procedures, and um, just overall philosophies and orders of doing things. And the instruments, both SICE and HP cubed, belong to their home institutions. But as a collaborative effort with JPL, there was a lot of sort of cross-pollination of ideas. Um, and I really enjoyed working with my German colleagues and become friends with quite a few of them. And, uh, you know, the experience of being able, I, I was traveling back and forth to Germany at least four times a year for the last eight years, probably most often more than that. Um, at most, I think I went, did eight trips in one year. And that's quite a lot of travel. Um, and it's certainly given me an appreciation of being able to be home for extended periods of time. Just seeing how another institution does things, another institution which has a good track record of spaceflight instruments, uh, but uh, they haven't sent, um, I mean, they're working on their the ExoMars lander, but uh, I think this will be, I think this will be the first instrument uh, that uh, DLR has placed on Mars. And JPL has done it several times. And just um, you know, learning the different ways that an institution will do things, it's, it's a mirror for, for my own institution. I think it's going, it has, and will continue to make me a, a overall better engineer of instruments, sort of appreciating and taking from both cultures the things that I think work and issuing the things that I think don't work. Um, as far as, um, I don't know, I have to think a little bit more to give you an answer to like what is like the biggest um, lesson from that. I don't, have a, I don't have a quick and ready answer for you. No, the, the long answer was great. It's always interesting to see how people interact between engineering teams, and especially for the bigger the project and the more uh, individual groups of people that have to come together. Uh, it's always an interesting interaction. Uh, kind of switching gears, uh, Insight uh, was actually delayed. Its original launch window was in 2016. Can you tell me kind of uh, if you were expecting everything to be ready in 2016, what has the extra two years given you and your team? Right. So the reason why we were delayed in 2016 is that there were problems uh, finalizing the seismometer instrument. It had um, it, the the VBB sensors have to operate in vacuum. Not even Mars's atmosphere is is good enough. You need you need them to be in high vacuum environments. So there's this vacuum enclosure. And this has to be evacuated on Earth and stay evacuated for the life of the mission. Um, and we were having problems, uh, I think, actually, um, with, with keeping the size um, uh, enclosure at a high enough vacuum, um, confidently so. Um, so because of that delay, of course, the size team had to go back and solve that problem with the help of JPL as a collaborative effort. We, they worked um, very, very uh, diligently over the last uh, two years to bring the size to a state where it is fully flight ready and we have confidence that it will work in all respects. Um, we used the time on HP cube to also improve some uh, design uh, shortfalls uh, in the instrument, just in the sense of making it even more robust uh, so that we have confidence that it will do the I mean, we expect something on the order of six to 8,000 hammer strokes in order for us to get to our final depth. And when the mole strikes, it's like 10,000 Gs delivered over a tenth of a second. It's, it's, a, it's a very violent environment inside the mole, and there were some things that were weakened under that, and we went back and did some design work to improve, um, improve the robustness of the mole. So we definitely took advantage of the time, although we had a much reduced team working on uh, Insight uh, in, uh, for part of that time, for about a year, year and a half, the team was reduced until we spun up again for the uh, assembly test uh, and launch operations uh, and the, uh, you know, bringing all the instruments together onto the spacecraft, doing our final testing and getting ready to launch. So the deployment and operation of Insight's experiments are 
uh, basically autonomous. Um, scientists and engineers have a say in, for example, where the instruments are placed on the surface. Um, but are there any other operational things that um, your team or um, its collaborators will be doing when Insight is on the ground? Or is it, well, you know, you've programmed uh, well, it? Well, I want to correct, I want to give a slight correction there. Sure. The, um, uh, even though the, the lander operates on its own and we don't have direct real-time communication with it at any point because it's too far away, um, we upload a set of commands um, every day um, or almost every day and to tell the lander what to do. And then the lander will do those things um, or maybe it encounters an anomaly and then it will stop and report back to us about the success or failure of the most recently uplinked command set. And there's a whole process for receiving the data, interpreting it, assessing the health and safety of the spacecraft and the instruments, seeing where we are in relation to our plan and making adjustments as needed. So there is continuous, during the deployment phase and even during HPQ's penetration phase, there's continuous involvement for the whole deployment process with the robotic arm. Um, after that's all complete and we are in what we call the monitoring phase, where SICE is listening for Mars quakes and meteorite impacts and the atmospheric interactions, and HP cubed is monitoring subsurface thermal gradient. There are still things that the, uh, for instance, the seismometer team, they can adjust parameters on the seismometer for event detection. The SICE instrument produces a great deal of data um, uh, the, the, the size of the grams can be, um, you know, very voluminous. Um, so we can't send all that data back to Earth um, all the time. So we have some intelligence on the spacecraft that detects events, seismic events. And there are parameters in that event detection that can be tuned. So the size itself can be calibrated and adjusted with different parameters to um, make it more sensitive uh, or properly adjusted for a given environment. Um, and so adjusting and tuning those parameters is an occasional um, interaction that will happen after we enter monitoring phase. Um, but one of the features of the InSight mission, which distinguishes it from something like a rover mission or even Phoenix, is that we do have a very well-defined plan for deployment and once deployment has happened and the instruments are in their monitoring modes, uh, it will be a, it should operate um, largely autonomously in the data gathering and return. Um, so there's a lot of involvement and a lot of back and forth, what we call ground in the loop interaction during um, the deployment phase. Once we enter monitoring, um, there's much less of that, and it's more about re receiving the scientific data and interpreting it. Insight is also planned to operate for a long period of time. Um, you mentioned that Phoenix only operated for a couple months, where um, I believe the Insight mission is outlined to be a, a couple of years. Um, how does that impact um, the mission as a whole, operations, and even spacecraft design? Right. So Phoenix was a, uh, both Phoenix and um, uh, InSight are solar powered missions based on the same uh, spacecraft bus. And uh, Phoenix was in the polar regions of Mars, which meant that landing when it did, it only had a few months of enough sunlight for it to stay alive and, and do its job. So there was a very compressed timeline and a great deal of urgency in achieving certain activities. Uh, InSight, because uh, its goal is to monitor things like uh, Mars quakes for a very uh, long period of time, it's, the nominal mission is one Mars year, which is just about two Earth years. Um, so we, um, we landed, or we have chosen a landing site for a number of reasons. Most of them are engineering-based. Um, the seismometer, at listening to Mars, as a whole, like it does, doesn't really care where it is. It could be anywhere on the planet and still do its job just fine. HP cubed, likewise, doesn't really care where it is as long as there's soil, regolith, for it to dig into. So the landing site was chosen primarily for engineering constraints. 
a safe place for the lander to land, someplace that has a low rock abundance, but also low dust abundance. We want something near the equator, which gives us regular and a uh, large amount of solar power throughout the year. Because Mars does have seasons. Uh, so the closer to the equator you are, the more uniform your illumination is over the year. We needed something that was at a relatively low altitude so that the parachute could do its job. If you wanted to land at a really high place on Mars, the atmosphere isn't dense enough for the parachute to work. And you want to land in an area that's not too windy because, again, you're on a parachute for a lot of the descent. Um, when you add all of those constraints together, there aren't that many places for you to land on Mars. Um, but we took those possibilities, and there has been a multi-year process wherein uh, planetary geologists uh, and uh, spacecraft engineers have looked very closely at uh, the surface of Mars in the landing site candidates using orbiting assets like the high-rise camera to take very high-resolution photographs of that particular region and evaluate it for you know what's the best place uh, what's the best place to go. Now, is there a extended mission plan for H cubed? Or is just having the sensor instrument embedded and generating data just as beneficial for as long as it can operate? So HP cubed is looking at, uh, once, once it's finished, uh, once the mole is, like I mentioned before, once the mole is at its final depth, it's essentially finished its job. We could make periodic thermal conductivity measurements at depth to see if it changes over the course of the year. Um, but we have to be careful because we don't want to inject so much heat into the ground that we disturb the thermal gradient measurement. Um, uh, so HP will monitor the thermal gradient for the duration of the life of the mission, and SICE will continue to monitor the, um, uh, the, the ground for quakes and seismic signals. But since, um, you know, it's, it's solar-powered, and as I mentioned, it's at a location where it will continue to get good solar power for, um, well, for as long as it's there. The one thing that might shorten its lifetime perhaps is dust accumulation on the solar panels, but as the rovers have experienced on Mars, you have dust devils occasionally, cleaning events. We don't count on these, but it's likely, uh, especially given our track record with things like the Opportunity Rover, which recently celebrated its 5,000th day on Mars after having been designed for only 90, um, it's possible that InSight could be returning data on Mars quakes and impacts and thermal gradient for a decade. Um, so once, uh, once its primary mission is completed, uh, it's very likely that uh, the mission will be extended, but it'll just be more of the same, listening to Mars to see what it can tell us. Now, you mentioned earlier that... Uh getting a seismometer on Mars had been a 30-year campaign. Uh, do you see kind of sister missions to InSight being uh, proposed and accepted to go to other potential bodies in the solar system? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, the Apollo astronauts left seismometers on the moon, which operated for almost a decade. And because of them, we have a pretty good idea of what uh, the interior of the moon looks like, certainly much better than we currently have of Mars. Um, there are other rocky planets in the solar system, Venus and Mercury, but they present some pretty challenging environments compared to Mars. Um, landing a seismometer uh, to, uh, or a heat flow probe to understand the um, behavior of a dwarf planet like Ceres or the, the, the structure of a dwarf planet like Ceres, that would be a very um, worthwhile goal and it would teach us a lot. And Ceres especially seems to have some interesting secrets. Um, so uh, there are certainly potential for um, future deployments of seismometers and heat flow probes. I'm not aware of any currently in competition or in the works, but I don't know everything. Well, I'll tell you one more interesting thing about the InSight mission. So as you, if you look online, you can find videos from the Phoenix Mars lander and its entry, descent, and landing process, what we call the seven minutes of terror, where it goes from its uh, cruise stage uh, in orbit around the sun to uh, you know, hypervelocity, um, 
uh, plunge through the upper Martian atmosphere with its heat shield, drops that heat shield and uh, goes on parachute and then uh, releases itself from that chute and falls to the ground under powered flight uh, and eventually soft lands on the surface. So what we're doing with InSight is very much like we're doing with Phoenix. However, given our landing site and the date when we're landing, um, the geometry, is, both the geometry and the availability of certain orbiting assets is unfavorable for a real-time, or not a real-time, but a direct-to-Earth relay. So we like to know what's going on with the spacecraft as it's descending through the atmosphere. Even though we can't command it, we would like to have a continuous stream of data um, telling us how it's behaving. Um, there's a spacecraft, the spacecraft that we'll be using to relay communications around Mars don't have the capability to receive in that frequency band and then transmit back to Earth in a different frequency band. It's just not something they're built for. So InSight is going to Mars with company. It actually has two CubeSats called MARCO. Uh, and this is the first time CubeSats have ever been deployed to an interplanetary mission. And these CubeSats will act as uh, radio relays, uh, taking the signal from InSight as it lands and sending that back to Earth. InSight can't do that itself because it's on the wrong side of the planet. And the other orbiting assets there can't do it either. So although it's not essential for the EDL process, the InSight lander is on total autopilot when it does this. But to get the data back um, as quickly as possible, um, we have these CubeSats as sort of a technology demonstration that'll be flying along with InSight. So um, that's another first for this mission. Yeah, and uh, we spoke with we spoke with Gretchen, uh, hoping to uh, speak directly with some experts on Marco. Um, I'm a huge fan of small sats and cube sats, and uh, it's very exciting to uh, demonstrate their capabilities um, in interplanetary missions as well. I have one more question, if you still have time. Uh, we've seen CubeSats as these small uh, platforms for experiments kind of explode in the, the Earth orbit market. Do you ever think that there's a, an opportunity or a niche for something CubeSat scaled that's a surface probe, either a lander or a little rover that's CubeSat sky sized? It's really difficult to say because I mean, when you get to get the CubeSats in orbit, you need a very large launch vehicle with lots of chemical propellant. To get to the surface of an airless body like the moon, you would also need chemical propellant to slow yourself down. To get to the surface of Mars, I mean, we have these elaborate heat shield and, and um, parachute methods. It'd be like dropping something from the, uh, in orbit around Earth to the surface. The entry, descent, and landing process requires a lot of infrastructure. So I don't immediately see a small fat application for large planetary bodies. Uh, it could be the case that a uh, CubeSat would be a uh, good platform for visiting very small, very low gravity objects like comets or asteroids. Ceres itself might even be too big for something like that. Its escape velocity is probably high enough that anything approaching from uh, any appreciable distance would be going a little too fast to soft land by itself. So, but you could imagine that um, a properly designed CubeSat might be able to land on a comet or an asteroid, um, you know, egg drop box style, um, and then go and do its work uh, from the surface. Thank you. Yeah, the uh, having those smaller, more achievable missions that even university teams and uh, we talked to a uh, high school or a group of high schools in California working on CubeSats. It'd be interesting to see if they can at some point work on planetary missions and planetary research. Mm-hmm. For certain. Okay, thank you so much, Troy, for speaking with us about uh, HP Cubed and Insight and sharing your personal anecdotes and all this uh, incredible technical information about the Insight mission. I'm happy to have discussed it with you. If you have further questions or you want clarification on anything, feel free to send a message. Yeah, this is just an amazing conversation, and I'm, I'm very uh, glad that you agreed to speak with us today. My pleasure. Anytime. Thanks for listening. 
If you like this episode, you can subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or your podcast provider of choice. Also, uh, be sure to leave us a review and tell us what you think. While you're there, you can check out our past episodes, including interviews with NASA scientists, industry experts, and our own commentary on current events in the space industry. We release a new episode of this podcast every week, and along with it, a blog article going into links and resources to all the research that went into it and additional information. On Mondays and Wednesdays, TJ and I have been writing for our blog different articles about science and technology for space exploration. You can check that out at blog.specscast.com. You could subscribe with your email to get updates so you never miss an article. If you want to get in touch with us, you can send an email to specscast at gmail.com or tweet at RIT Specs. Stick around next week for another episode in our Mars May. We'll see you then. Thanks.